0: Okay, here we are, July the 16th, 2017, lecture discussion number 289 on the Book of Romans. And yes, we are back, for those of you who have noticed that we are gone, it's getting fewer and fewer that notice that we're gone, so that will make it easy to hide at some point. But we're back. We had a respite of the past two weeks, that allows the analog cliffside audience as opposed to the... Digital audience, high digital audience, the analog cliffside audience got to venture forth into the Alaskan wilderness in search of red salmon the last two weeks. Uh, And it also enabled, uh, made time for the Chronister construction staff to complete a framing siding project, which we did. Uh, Built a retaining wall and put up about 60 foot of brick facade. So, we were productive in this time. By construction staff, in case you're wondering, I mean me and Lori, mostly Lori. Uh, Somebody has to be the administrative supervisory uh, aspect of the operation. Uh, That's very important. And Lori, of course, provides the brute force. Hierarchy is essential to a successful enterprise, as you all know. Okay. Who remembers where we left off? I have a little voice problem. Uh, I'll try to persevere, endeavor to persevere, one of my favorite Western movie lines. Okay, probably no one knows where we left off, certainly not me. I have a vague general idea as a highly trained professional. We are somewhere in the vicinity of Genesis 3, specifically Genesis 3. 14 and 15, that is where we are contextually, which, of course, Genesis 3 and 14 is the culmination point, in my opinion, in time of the of the fall of Satan. So I'm asking you, as you know, to make a timeline of whatever length you prefer. If you would like to be 120 jubilees, that's perfectly appropriate. But at some place in your timeline, you have to establish the creation of Adam, the fall of Satan, the uh, creation of the lake of fire, the creation of Satan. So somewhere in your timeline, if you put Adam here, well, then you're going to have to add some more timeline, in my view. So figure out what your timeline is. In any event... Genesis 3.14, let's just for today put it right here. There it is. That's Genesis 3.14 and 15. I think that it is an extraordinary uh, event, not of course eclipsing the crucifixion or even the birth or any aspect of Christ. But with regard to those creative beings, thus uh, the Satan being one, it is an extraordinary event. Point in time, this fall of Satan, a defining moment in the history of the world at the time, because we didn't have very much, did we? When Satan fell, he fell within a hundred years of the creation of Adam again, in my view. I, I will re- go over that someday again, but this 314-315 of Genesis, an incredible moment in history. And because God has moved against the rebellion of Satan and the fallen angels, Satan has been cursed as God defines cursed. So this is the cursing of Satan right here, and that is extraordinary. I cannot emphasize enough because God has come and counterattacked, to use a humanistic position that is not what he did because he's outside of time and omniscient but as far as we and the angels are concerned they're seeing the response of God again theologically unsound to say response of God that's for another day satan cursed by God declared to be cursed by God and so now ask the immediate obvious questions how loud was this declaration of Genesis 3:14 and 15 how much noise did God make when he did it? Who heard God proclaim Satan to be accursed? He says he's accursed. Who heard it? When God declares somebody to be accursed, is this eternal or temporal? Them's the choices. Is this a uh, an eternal... Condemnation or a temporary condemnation? Is Satan going to be in an eternal state or a temporal state? There's a great disagreement over that, as you know. Uh, I uh, I wouldn't necessarily want to imply that I know what everybody's view is on this, but I would guess that most of us here have an eternal position. But there is a large group of people that say that all judgment is conditional. A very large group of people. What physical evidence, moving to the next question, if any, does God provide that Satan is now in a damnable condition? In other words, was there a physical change of Satan's appearance? We have a description of him as we have gone over in the past. He's perfect in beauty. He's extraordinarily beautiful. In fact, his beauty causes him problems just as mine causes me problems okay maybe not so much how come all of you laughed there wasn't one on my side in the entire it was a monolithic 100% opposed i need i need more mirrors or fewer mirrors one or the other anyway that satan Perfect in beauty, and his beauty has an influence on his thought process. He also has, uh, he's filled to the brim with wisdom. Did he go through, did God physically change how he looked when he condemned him? Did he take away any physical characteristics and give him identifying markers? Does God ever identifyingly mark someone After he has judged them. Is there any place else in scripture where he has done that? Okay. Did he do it here? Is there a relationship between this physical identifying mark and the other physical identifying marks? So to repeat the question. What physical evidence, if any, does God provide that Satan is now in a damnable condition and has no recourse? Satan having no recourse, having no exceptions and has no mercy. What then, once we have dealt with Satan, what then would logically befall the fallen angels? What would be their fate? How come they're not mentioned here? Would they have expected to be mentioned? Aren't they part of the situation? I've asked quite a few times uh, now over the last few months, when did God create the lake of fire, Matthew twenty five five forty one. When was that created? Put it on your timeline. Was it before Adam or after Adam? Or was it at Genesis three oops, I put fifteen fifteen here, didn't I? Was it at Genesis three fourteen through fifteen? Just asking because I want you to consider it as we go along here. Now, Jesus Christ himself. No stuttering. There's no stuttering here. There's no possibility of misinterpreting this. It emphatically says to, at Matthew 25:41, to those on his left hand or on the left hand, which is not a good place to be. Here's what he says. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what he says. That's something he will say at the end of the age. Matthew 25:46 and these will go into everlasting punishment everlasting punishment this is God saying that those in the lake of fire will be in everlasting punishment but the righteous he says will go to eternal life so I have this happening I have everlasting And then I have eternal life. I'm very proud of myself. I want to take a stop here and point out that I have been able to refill successfully now my dry erase markers that come from Richard in Japan. And that's not easy. The first time I did it, of course, with my superhuman strength, I destroyed the pen. Not knowing that it unscrewed. I thought it unsnapped. And it did unsnap. I have the pen to prove that I was able to unsnap it. But now, after destroying that one, I have been able to repair. And notice how nice and bright the the writing is this week that all by myself I want some kind of recognition here yeah. thank you thank you I love the jokes have you seen the guy or the, the Australian I, I don't I'm pretty sure it's Australian where he has a magic table and whatever he, he tells his girlfriend or his wife he said she's complaining about how things are so difficult and he's not helping he says don't worry about it we got a magic table have you seen that it's fantastic. That was so insightful. The magic, you just put stuff on the magic table and it will fold the clothes and put food away and anything on that table. is just brilliantly done. I would recommend that every woman and man in the world watch that. We, us men, we want to be patted on the heads for simple things. We do. Yeah. I loaded three dishes in the dishwasher. I want credit. I want recognition. I want some kind of plaque. I fixed my pins by myself. It's fantastic. Ah, it's hot in here, isn't it? Yeah, I might not make it through with this incredibly expensive tie. And I have to wear a tie now every week, no matter what. I didn't last week, but I have to. That identifies what sermon is What? That's exactly how they do it. They go by the ties. You'll understand if you ever go to tube face. Matthew 25:46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into ever—I'm sorry—into eternal life. Notice this positioning. Everlasting punishment is held in contrast; it is side by side with eternal life. Everlasting fire is the destiny of everyone who has been cursed, who will be cursed by God. When God curses you, you are on your way to everlasting fire by your own willful decision. Eternal death is the fate of those whom God has identified as cursed, as accursed. Eternity is the consistent property to be noted here. There is eternal life, that's one place, or there is eternal death. That is your choices again, eternal death or eternal life. Note again the eternal aspect of that. There is no such thing as provisional death, as the God of creation, the Lord God Almighty, frames or defines death. When God speaks of death, you have to begin to say to yourself, what does he mean? Not what do we mean, what does he mean? He defines death. Overwhelmingly, as the second death. And if you prefer, you can enter. Uh, connect, I'm sorry, you can. Uh, you can have a drink of medicine. You can replace death with curse. They are the same thing to God. As He speaks, second death, everlasting punishment. Life to God is eternal life. He is outside of time. He sees life as he defines it. He sees death as he defines it. It It's something that would be naturally occurring. Understand the everlasting condition of the cursed. I'm repeating that because it comes up again later, back here. So those who insist on a transitory death have not considered the mathematics of it, or more precisely, the mathematics of infinity. To repeat the essence of the debate, if you haven't heard it, uh, the position is this. If unbelief or evil, again, replaceable, is released from condemnation after a million years. Grant me the hypothesis, would you? If somebody is an unbeliever, and therefore evil, as God defines evil, he just defines unbelief as evil. If someone is evil, and they are put into condemnation, and the term of the Condemnation is a million years in the lake of fire. What percentage, and they are released after a million years, what percentage of infinity is one million years? That's the mathematics of the equation. What then is the difference percentage-wise between being saved and being condemned? Does that make sense? If you are condemned for only a million years, what percentage of eternity, what percentage of infinity is a million years? And therefore, what is the percentage difference between someone in eternal life and someone who is pardoned after a million years? Again, how do you do this? Feel free to use your phones. Inner one million. Define, I'm sorry, enter one million and divide by infinity. What number did you get? How big a number is it? What is the difference between someone who is saved mathematically and in eternal life and someone who is pardoned after a billion years? Divide a billion by infinity. Give me the percentage. Okay? Proceed next now to the most obvious of the obvious questions. How many who are cursed by God will repent? What is the rate of rehabilitation in the lake of fire? How many will regret their experience in the lake of fire? Now, that's a little different word. You'll notice I jumped to uh, Judas. Judas did not repent. He regretted. He did not have remorse. He had regret. The word means regret there. How many who are cursed by God will be rehabilitated? How many will believe God? The answer to this is none. None. Please don't write to me about the literally true. I'm speaking to the Internet audience here. Don't write to me. Well, you can write to me. But don't write to me about the literally true story of the rich Pharisee and Lazarus in Luke 16:14 through 31. The rich Pharisee, notice I call him a Pharisee because the context, Christ is speaking to the Pharisees, and they knew they were being, uh, they knew who this rich Pharisee was. It's a literally true story. It's not a parable. If you've got a parable written in your Bible, you can use my pen that I have fixed and cross out parable. It is a true, literally true story. Two. Men who actually lived. The rich Pharisee demonstrated without any controversy a deep, intense hatred, mocking, derisive contempt, loathing for Christ. That's, when you read what he says, make sure you notice that. If you don't notice that, read it again, because it is plain as it can be. He accuses Jesus of being unjust. He's very clever. But he says that he is there unjustly. Send me a drop of water. I deserve a drop of water. Send Lazarus to give me a drop of water. Try to begin to think of what he is saying. Abraham represents Christ in that story that is true. But the Pharisee, the rich Pharisee, how many church people and authority in the church are rich the answer would probably be all of them in case you're wondering my condition i have no authority here then see, see you have to notice that disclaimer He accuses Jesus of being unjust, which is the equivalent of charging the creator God, the I am, the ancient of days, of being the source of all evil. If Christ is unjustly putting people in torment, he is evil. And the rich Pharisee and the beggar Lazarus is fundamentally revealing the premise of Satan, which contains As you know, as we've repeatedly covered, this slander that God cannot lawfully or morally judge sin. That is what the rich Pharisee says. You have judged me and you are wrong. I deserve mercy. Water is mercy. and You send somebody to give it to me. And you do what I say. I command you to to go to my brothers with all of this evidence. Look at how uh, he has responded to. Understand it. There's is slander inside, intrinsic in that entire literally true event, that God cannot lawfully uh, or morally judge sin. And he cannot do that because God himself is the origin of sin. His creations, his creatures have been given no capacity to control their fate. All things are predetermined. Free will is illusionary. And all of that is in that story as it always is. It's everywhere throughout Satan's plan it is it is a cornerstone excuse me a cornerstone of his process you'll recognize all of that eventually you'll see the ensuing path that becomes fatalism from this kind of thinking it's hopeless there is no reason to do anything everything's been predetermined i have no free will i have no capacity to affect anything, therefore why should I do it do I should sit and wait and die? That's evolutionary philosophy, as you know also. There's no will. Anyway, God has now, at Genesis three fourteen, attacked that. For using another word that doesn't actually fit in God's Way of doing things. But at Genesis 3 14 and 15, God has announced, He has proclaimed that Satan and his angels are accountable, and accountability infers willfulness. Oops! And Satan has been cursed by God, and there is this change of status, a revelation. God will not permit sin to attain supremacy. Evil will be confined. Wickedness will be restrained. Condemnation is approaching. The clock has been wound and punched. So to speak, the end of this, the end of this is not been disclosed. So once again, let's read what God says to Satan and his angels. It's amazing. I cannot say that enough. How amazing these two verses are. All verses in the Bible, amazing. I haven't studied all verses in the Bible in case you want to know. Uh, People come to me all the time and they'll produce an obscure passage and ask me to give them uh, an analysis of it. And I'll say, I'm a limited man. Sorry. I'll do the best I can. But do not expect me to be expert. Here, however, I have devoted... I can't even count the hours on these two verses. Every time I go in, I'll explain that in a minute. But let's just read it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, "This is a conversation that has occurred between God and Satan. It's unbelievable." When did it happen on your timeline? Because you have done this. You've heard me say, what is this that he did? Because you've done this, you are more cursed than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now foremost, it is of utmost importance that Genesis three fourteen and Genesis three fifteen remain intact. Don't manipulate them. What I mean by that is these two verses are one thing, one unit. It's incredibly problematic to attempt to divide them, though they are almost routinely. Isolated one from another. To put it another way, if you were to try to dissect 13 and 14, there is no place to cut. You can't do it. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman are intertwined. They're not severable from the cattle and the beasts. So whenever you're going to talk about the serpent seed and the woman's seed, you're going to have to talk about the cattle and the beasts. You can't just take this part. You've got to take all of it. Does that make sense? Hope it does. You also have to get the belly and the dust and the head and the heel. There is an interdependent progression, a building, if you will, stone on stone. Can't pull out stones. No stone can be removed. It's all molded into one piece. The cattle and the beasts are that upon which the seed and the seed are set. So if you try to figure out what's going on with the seed in the seed, but you don't look at the cattle and the beasts and the belly and the dust, then we have problems. Let me put it another way. The seed of the woman killing physically the seed of the serpent. Now, I said physically. Could I have said spiritually? Get back to me later. The seed of the woman killing physically the seed of the serpent is the logical conclusion to because you have done this. Whatever this is, that results in the killing of the seed of the serpent. It begins with because you have done this. It moves through the cattle and the beasts. Then next is on your belly you shall go. And you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And we've got to stop there a bit, huh? Ask at least one, maybe two, maybe three questions. How many days does Satan get? How many days does he get? He's going to He's going to Let me read it. You are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on the belly. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. How many days does Satan get? How long is all the days of your life? How does God define life in this context? What does he mean by life? This is the verdict phase, to use the legal term, the finding. The trial of Satan has been in session. The judge of all things, the Lord Jesus Christ, is presiding. He, he's Now he's presides. He is presiding in this. How do I know that it is Jesus Christ who said this to Satan? I know it's Jesus Christ that said it to Satan because of John 5.22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. All judgment, John 5.22. All Is in the hands of Christ. Here's a judgment. Here's a judge. That judge, Daniel 7, is the Ancient of Days. This is Christ himself. Satan is being sentenced by Christ. He is the judge of all. All means all. Having said that, it's important to note that unlike most convictions of our judicial system, there's something missing here. What's missing? He's been convicted. He's been cursed. To what? What is the sentence? He's been given what sentence? Everlasting death. You didn't get a life sentence. You got a death sentence. He's on death row. But there was not, as is typical in our judicial system, there was not an immediate imprisonment of Satan or his angels. They remain loose, kind of. Why? They've done this. Satan has been convicted. Whatever the this is, we'll get to that in a minute. Why didn't God immediately imprison them? Does God imprison angels? Yes, he does. Why didn't he just grab Satan and throw him into the lake of fire right here? He does not. Why not? Did they make bail? Fred's bail bondsman? Come by, hand it up a couple. Of, what's the collateral? What percentage? Are they on probation? Why weren't they imprisoned? Now some are going to say, well, because he didn't make the prison yet. He didn't make the lake of fire. That's why I keep saying to you, figure out where that lake of fire is. Now ask yourself, how come they didn't get thrown into it? If he hadn't made the lake of fire, why not? What about the angels locked up in Tartarus? That's in the chains of darkness, 2 Peter 2.4. Let's find a place to put that. 2 Peter 2.4, chains of darkness. What about those guys? Because I have angels waiting, reserved for judgment, in the chains of darkness. Who put them there? Obviously, it's not time for Satan and his angels to be in the lake of fire. It is time for angels to be in the chains of darkness. Why isn't it time for the angels of the fallen angels of Satan and Satan himself to be put in to the lake of fire? Why aren't they there to repeat that question again? What is proved by these angels, these fallen angels remaining uh, their continued freedom, remaining in freedom? Why then specifically who are these guys in 2nd 2 Peter 2:4? 2, Why are they placed into the chains of darkness? What did they do? When did they do it? I've got all of these angels to deal with. Some are loose. Some are in chains of darkness. I've got a lake of fire. Nobody's in that. Satan is still running loose. How come all of that is still true? What made it so that Satan was not put in prison? Uh Once again, I have out-kicked my coverage. Let's back up. This is where I need to push a button and get some kind of beep, beep, beep thing. I need a theme song. I have had people on the Internet suggest them for me. They have. They said, uh, you need a theme song. I need some kind of system where I can push buttons and make noises. I think that would be really cool. It would probably double the attendance. That's very funny, but no one knows it. (laughs) Okay, back up a second. I submit, this is back to because you have done this. That's directed at Satan from God himself, from Jesus Christ himself, because you have done this. I submit that everyone that that heard that knew, and everyone knew what it was that Satan had done. Satan certainly knew what the this was. The question becomes the scope the scope of the this is is Christ referring to the abundance of your traffic? Remember that from a few weeks ago, Ezekiel twenty eight sixteen, or is Christ limiting Satan? To the deception of Eve and the subsequent fall of Adam. Did that make sense? Did I make that clear? I've said, does that make sense now three times? Counting that last, does that make sense? Which makes four. If I keep saying that, it's not good news for me as the beloved teacher. Is Christ... Is the this limited to Adam and Eve? Or does the this also incorporate the fall of the one-third angelic host? Is the this the same in both places? In other words, is the this the methodology or the method or the acts of Satan with Adam and Eve? are they absolutely or completely identical to what he did in the heavenly host? So the this is the this and both thises. Does that make. Stop myself. Option three, of course, is all of the above, right? Uh, that it is both. He is not limiting Satan to the deception of Adam and Eve, and he is not limiting Satan to what happened with the angelic host. It is both of them in a combined form. So let's reword the hypothesis. Is Satan being shown his ultimate destiny for his wickedness in heaven? His wickedness on the organic earth are both, all of his acts. I think it's only reasonable that the omniscient judge tries Satan for, at minimum, his crimes to date. In other words, to wherever this is, everything that he has done prior to this. Now, he will do more. Why does he have the opportunity to do more? He is given the opportunity to repeat everything that he does with Adam and Eve on a much larger scale to everyone who comes subsequent. Why is he given that opportunity? In that sentence is your answer. And then he, of course, is is put into a 1,000 year period of confinement. Why is he confined? That will explain why he is still loose. I think, again, it's only reasonable that the omniscient judge, Jesus Christ, tries Satan for his crimes. Again, he's outside of time. He does not reveal the future to the fallen angels. He reveals the future to his prophets. But he does try him and convict him for the crimes to the point of that sentencing. Satan has a pattern of behavior. He moves from one to another. It's called the abundance of your traffic. Likely, it's individualized. He seems to take one at a time. That is how he functions, at least with Adam and Eve. It's this nature of one at a time. Now, perhaps he first targeted the highest ranking of the angels. Imagine he's going to take out as many angels as he possibly can. How did he do it? Did he have a big meeting of all of them and try to convince them all at once? Or did he go to the highest ranking, relied on them to continue the process? Chain of command, if you will. Multi-level marketing. That's very funny, too. No one laughed enough. Thank you. You have a responsibility to the Internet audience. There, That's better. That's much better. (laughs) How did he approach the problem of destroying the angelic host? One at a time? How much time would that take? Put it on your timeline. Did he go to the highest ranking? Did he attack Adam first or Eve first? There's no record of him attacking Adam. But he didn't deceive Adam. So Adam is undeceived. That implies that Adam had knowledge of what Satan was doing. Did he attack them both together? If you have the both together view... I can swat it away in 15 seconds. Go look up John Gill, George Whitefield, Whitfield, Arthur Pink. They will explain to you how you cannot have Adam side by side with Eve and have Adam not deceived and Eve the first in sin. So, how did Satan approach this problem of getting his uh, his lie into the Minds of every angel he could. Clearly, he was unsuccessful. Do you see that? He was unsuccessful. Because what did he think he was going to accomplish? And the Bible says that he was unsuccessful. He was unsuccessful because how many angels fell? One third. He got 33%. Sixty-six percent did not fall. How did he respond to that failure? How did Satan respond to the failure of 66.6, 67 percent of all the angels did not follow him? How did he respond to that? Ezekiel 28.16 tells us how he responded to that. He became filled with violence and rage when he failed. Ask why? did he believe he was going to get them all he got 33% now i'm aware that some take issue with my conclusion to expand satan's condemnation beyond the deception of eve they want genesis 3:14 and 15 to only be about what happened to adam and eve i got that i know that that's very common they do not want me to include the fall of the angelic host to combine them but i am indeed combining ezekiel 28:12 through 16 with genesis 3:14 and 15 it is in my opinion genesis 3:14 and 15 the destroying of satan let me read it to you this is what god says to satan therefore i cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of god When did that happen? I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the mist of the firing stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. So I ask. When was Satan cast to the ground? To me, it rings of Genesis 3.14. Let me go back and read Genesis 3.14 for you. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat ground. I cast you to the dust. So I put 3.14 with Ezekiel 28. 16 through 17, because to me the similarities are obvious. So who are the kings that gaze upon Satan? When did God destroy Satan? Most of you know I consider the cattle and the beast to be profoundly mysterious. I've spent hours and hours and hours tracing the cattle and the beasts. But I also, the thing that has always struck me here is the ands. Every time I read it, I just go, what is going on with the ants? You see, the serpent is cursed more than the cattle and cursed more than every beast. God himself said this. Again, how does God define cursed? Everlasting death. What is the meaning of "cursed" when the judge of all things uses it within this context? I think it's everlasting death. I know the snake is made a portrait of Satan, or I'm certain that that's the case. I could be wrong. Probably not. Yes, ma'am, I see the fingers of ending have been raised. Look at where I am, perfectly situated, to get under the timeline. Snake is a portrait of Satan. He's a symbol. The snake is a symbol. All snakes after this will remind mankind and the angelic host of Satan's rebellion. So when I look at a snake and I'm a man, i got to think, how does this remind me of Satan? When I look at a snake and I'm an angel, I have to say, how does this remind me of Satan? Two different perspectives, but both are looking at the same symbol. What do snakes do for us? They slither in dust on their bellies. They're poisonous. They're deadly. They suffocate. But they're also low to the ground. Their heads are vulnerable, unprotected. They strike at the feet of their targets. That's why everybody wears boots in Texas. You'd be an idiot to wear tennis shoes in Texas. Wander through the fields. I went to visit Florida. It rained. And I, being an idiot, went outside because it was hot. And I wanted to feel the heat during the rain. And they screamed at me, don't go outside. I wanted to say, why not? And they said, because of the coral snakes. And then they told me this thing. If it's this color, this color, this quarter, that's good. If it's this color, this color, that color, that's bad. And I'm going, ah, I'm going to die. When that thing's coming at me, I'm not going, what color are you? I'm going, that's what I'm doing. And if that's a friendly snake, too bad. Don't go near a puddle. All puddles have alligators in them. Why do you live here? Are you out of your mind? We have bears that come into our houses. That's not a big deal. Just get them to the kitchen. I will come out later and and encourage them to leave. I have the resources. This color good, this color bad, that color, this color. What are you doing? I can't imagine. But the snake slithers. It's poisonous. They strike at at the heels of their victims, their targets. All of those components individually, collectively reveal information about Satan to both us and the angels. Give you another example. The poison of a snake bite, the reaction inside the victim. Extraordinary. The angels would see that. The tissue damage. How it spreads. Whenever I find myself at Genesis 3, especially Genesis 3 14 and 15, I feel like George Washington Carver with his peanuts. He was a great genius. I mean, maybe he's in the top five of all time. I certainly place him there Solomon Isaac Newton, George Washington Carver, Max Planck, Niels Bohr. I have a few other favorites John Bell. This is a great genius George Washington Carver and he's staring at his peanut at a peanut and he's beginning to excavate it he's taking the peanut apart it's an incredible story this man and I'm no George Washington Carver but I believe the principle applies to the Bible Genesis 3:14 through15 has become my peanut in a in a reduced fashion don't put me anywhere near uh, somebody like Carver Every time I think I have a handle on the pieces, I go, I got this, I got it. I find more pieces. I just can't stop it. There's just no way I can stop the pieces. And I'm looking at the ands, just the ands. Let me repeat it. Because you have done this, you are cursed more. How do I, who's, everyone's in the lake of fire. Who's more cursed? What's the Delaney? You are cursed more. How do I curse? How do I get more out of this? I wrestled with that for for a long time. I still do a bit. You are cursed more than the cattle. Then this incredible word. And! Not just the cattle. And more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. And you shall eat dust. I try to imagine how this is done. All the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. As you know, why the woman? And between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your heel and you shall bruise his, I'm sorry, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Then I go on to see the ands in the woman and Adam. Why are these ands here? Cattle and beast. Why not stop at cattle? Why did he add beasts? What do beasts have that the cattle don't have? What's the difference between a beast and a cattle? Is a cattle a beast? Is a beast a cattle? Apparently not. Because there's an and. Satan is cursed for eternity. Why isn't that enough? It isn't. He has to be cursed more than the cattle and the beast. Christ doesn't end there. On your belly. Why not stop with on your belly? And eat dust. Doesn't stop there. And I will put enmity. Why does God put enmity? How does God put enmity? What is this enmity? I can't even say it. I have to have a mess. What is enmity? I've tried to imagine... How does all that collect to the this? Because it does. I've tried to imagine the angelic host as God speaks this sentencing. And I wondered if he paused. Because I would have paused. It doesn't mean that I'm right about it, but I've always wondered. In other words, the ands are clearly a vehicle to ensure we see the depth of connectivity in the two verses. This progression, this step-by-step construction, the cause and effect. I believe it's beyond dispute. But what, again, if God paused? I thought, how long? I imagine the angels would be doing what? It's a trial. What do you do at a trial? What's one of the roles of the people of the trial? Is to make a transcription. So I put my stenography. I imagine the stenographer and i don't know how the machines work it looks like they're just beating on it with their fists i don't know sure it's a little bit more complicated than that so i imagine the angels would be transcribing both sides i've got a fallen transcriber and an unfallen transcriber i got everybody taking notes this is a big deal this is a stop sign a huge stop sign and The history of everything that has happened here to this date. So, because you have done this, you are cursed. Pause. Everybody's going around, because you've done this, what's this? You are cursed. What's cursed mean? Define curse. They're all running around. I I think that God let them go. More than cattle. What? More than cattle? Why? Huh? What did the cattle do? Who are the cattle? Why are cattle cursed? More. Why is he cursed more than cattle? How more is, is more? Why more? How much more? God spoke to the serpent. The serpent is a symbol of Satan. Are the cattle likewise symbols? They would know that, wouldn't they? What conclusion do they make? What is cattle to an angel? Not what is cattle to a man. What is cattle to an angel? Why is the cattle cursed more? Who are the cattle? Again, how are cattle cursed? Are they eaten? Were the cattle changed? Probably a cattle committee was formed. Trying to figure out capital. And every beast. What? It keeps going. And so shall we. Next week. Finish this. Bring a peanut. We can figure it out.